Hey everyone, this is Dan with the Spiritual Underground Podcast coming to you from indoors. Sometime here before long, I'll get back out to the wood shop. I need to I need to do something to get my Wi-Fi out to my wood shop so I can do my podcast in that environment. I just like the vibe. If you're just stumbling into this uh, podcast, this is uh, primarily a 12-step-based recovery podcast, although we do have people uh, from all walks of life in at times. Uh, we have uh, had guests dealing with recovery from divorce, recovery for people who are uh, nicotine cessation people. Uh, we've had just about uh, anything that we're, we're, what I'm aiming at is people who are finding their true selves, finding their true voice, uh, aiming at being a better version of themselves day by day, however that comes about. Um one way we do that around here is through this program called 12 Step Spiritual Recovery. Uh, it is the 12 steps for anyone. Uh, it is for those who don't fit in traditional 12 step fellowships. Um, always, I like the three niches is what I've come up with. It's for those who don't fit in the 12 step fellowships. They don't have, suffer with sub, substance abuse, uh, overeating, gambling, any of the other hundred or so 12, uh, 12 step fellowships out there. Um, what 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 everybody inside of a twelve step fellowship calls a normie, <laughs> you are a normal person, but you're looking for something more in life, so maybe some new tools. Uh, for people who just can't find it in places like Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, and it's just not landing for them, the same tools can be available outside of that environment, and that's what we're doing. And it's also for people who want another dive. Uh, I say a deeper dive, maybe into the twelve steps, some different. Uh, methodology than maybe what you were brought up uh, using. It's the same basic 12 steps. Uh, I know all over the world, they use them a little bit different. It's like tribal knowledge, how this 12-step thing, this 12-step framework is being uh, being used successfully and, and all of them work. Uh, and I've always been encouraged by my sponsor to seek out new teachers and, and, and test that waters like that so this might be an opportunity for those folks 12-step spiritual recovery the book is by james christopher cone it can be found on amazon and uh you can contact me through facebook or hook up through the podcast uh, spiritualunderground.org is the website and uh if you want any more information about that i always want to give a shout out to darren frank his music is what i play for the intro and outros of this uh, he's been, uh, he's my grand sponsor and he's been very influential on my recovery. Uh, hell of a dude. So we'll get, you know, you guys are getting tired of hearing me talk about clubhouse probably. Uh, but I have just found a new community and then, uh, it's, uh, allowed me to, to broaden my horizons to say the least. I'm getting to meet a ton of cool people, uh, for the most part, my 12 step walk has been surrounded just by local people from right around town and i think that's the way most people do you know you show up at some meeting across town and uh and and branch out from there but this has allowed me to meet people who are uh in recovery from all over the world actually uh if you stay up late enough you get some people coming in from europe into some of these uh recovery meetings and that is just super cool i just love that uh in 1935 some guy, some broke down drunk, put together some 12 steps and it has spread all over the world. Uh, my guest today we met there. Uh, we were supposed to, I had her scheduled a little while back. Uh, it was going to be on the day of her 36th sobriety birthday. And I don't, I remember she had a lot on her plate and uh, this certainly wouldn't uh, uh, 
take a priority in most, it, it, I always say, I don't want you coming here if there's any kind of stressful or thing around it. That's just not the energy we want to do. And I frankly can't remember exactly. I think you were getting ready to launch something, like getting ready to uh, start off on some kind of program, I think. And uh, anyway, it didn't work out, but we got it rescheduled. Uh, we had a conversation about a week ago uh, where I was the guest on her show. So uh, I love that cross-pollination deal. Uh, I was looking up a minute ago. And I, and I Googled you. And uh, my guest today is Maureen, uh, founder of Emerge Leadership Academy, uh, leadership trainer, inspirational speaker, coach, author, helping leaders emerge, evolve, and lead their life to create a bigger impact in all they serve. Uh, that is my mission. You know, that it's interesting that these, I see certain people who get sober and, and, and blossom to a point where they just really have a drive for helping other people, uh, just wanting to lift people. And, you know, when you bump into them, uh, you don't know what you're feeling at first, man, but the energy people like that put out, is fantastic. It makes me want to be close to them physically and, uh, and get to know them. Uh, welcome to the show, Marie. Thank you so much, Dan, for having me. I'm looking yeah. forward to the conversation. Yeah, we're going to learn a little bit uh, about you. Um, every time I have somebody on this show, I feel like they've walked off and I got a new friend. And uh, I just love learning, listening to people's walks. And, and I can pick up stuff and use it in my recovery and uh, use it in a way I can help others. Uh, so what was your sobriety date? So I've been sober since February 3rd, 1985. And for that, I am truly grateful. That's really through the grace of God and the fellowship of the program. Yeah. Yeah. Where'd yeah. You, where do you live now? I live in Connecticut now, but I got sober in Austin, Texas. Yeah. Uh, is that where you grew up? No, I grew up in Connecticut. I took a geographical cure. Okay. All right. Well, we'll hear about that. I always like to talk to people and ask them, you know, uh, it's interesting to me to hear people's family backgrounds, how they're, how they, what, what they what their perspective is, you know, that's the other thing about getting sober. I started realizing that my perspective of my childhood uh, is not entirely accurate, but <laughs> it's getting more accurate now. Uh, I would have told you some things about my childhood that now I don't, now I know are not true. Um, so uh, how'd you grow up? Did you brothers, sisters have intact? Oh yeah. Divorce? Yeah. My story goes like this. My parents had six kids in eight and a half years. Ooh. Yeah. I was number three. We call that Irish Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was just one of the pack. You know, I, I was right in the middle and um, I was told what to do and when to do it and how to do it and why, sometimes why. I didn't get a lot of choices. You're told when to take a bath and when to go to bed and what to eat and when to shut up and when to open up, you know? So there was, there was rules, but we had a pretty good time. Um, my father did become an alcoholic, but that wasn't until I was closer to 12. And we had a major, a major family event uh, where our house burnt down. Ooh. And so there was a, some drinking that had started before that for him. And then um, afterwards in great detail, you know, in, in mm. excess. Uh, but, were, you, were you home when the house burned down? I was actually babysitting next door to the for two little kids and 
the parents didn't get home until like 1 32 o'clock in the morning and the fire happened about one o'clock my dad was up waiting for us but he had fallen asleep on the couch and honestly um yeah they said it was an electrical but i think it was probably a cigarette mm, that's what i was just when you said fall asleep on the couch that was uh yeah be my guess uh yeah, something happened. But my sister was babysitting across town and the four boys were all sleeping in their beds, as was my mom. And my dad woke up. The couch was on fire. He tried to drag it out the front door and the old wallpaper, you know, in, in those days, wallpaper, everything caught on fire and went straight up into the. So it was not a good scenario. Anyways, yeah. he got third degree burns on his hands and his feet. Everybody wow. got out okay, except for him. Um, but yeah, and then it was it was a seven alarm fire. It was unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my mom woke up to her house on fire when she was a little girl. And uh, she speaks of that with, a, you know, I would classify it as trauma. Oh, yeah. It was very traumatic. The whole family. So... I'll tell you a little bit more. My, my dad came over. I had fallen asleep on the sofa while I was waiting. And uh, he had been over earlier that night to watch TV with me. And then he left and I heard a knock on the door. I woke up in the middle. I didn't know what it was. He knocked again. I looked and there was my father. And I was like, is he, did he come back to watch t more TV with me? You know, like I, I was confused. So I opened the door. He's in his bathrobe. He comes in, he says, where's the phone? So I bring him into the into the other room. This is when we still had landlines, yep. you know? And he says, where's the phone book? Well, it was right next to the phone. That's when I knew something was wrong. And I said, dad, what's, what's wrong? And he said, oh, our house almost burnt down and I'm calling the, you know, the, the other bait, the, the people who my sister was babysitting out to make sure she wasn't still in the house. Everyone got out, but the two girls aren't there. You're here. And I want to make sure Robin is not in that house, yeah, you know? Yeah. So I took a quarter of a turn to the right and I looked out this huge bay window. And when he, he had said our house almost burned down the freaking house, there was flames shooting like 30 feet into the air, 50 feet into the air, every color you can imagine, red, blue, orange, green, yellow, because the lights were flashing from all the emergency vehicles mm. and I, it was it was terrifying I'll you bet. know and he he got off the phone he said it's okay she's on her way home right now so i know she's not home yet and he left i didn't realize it but he was in shock he had third degree burns on his hands and his feet um and then the the neighbor the neighbor's mom came over mrs m and she came over and sat with me for another hour before um, the parents got home of the people that i was babysitting for but my whole family was separated for weeks and as a family of eight that's not okay and my yeah. birds died that night and here's oh. the other kicker i had just that day i was 11 i was a couple months shy of 12 years old i had just that day for with my very own money i bought my first three-speed red columbia bicycle oh man and the net and the first thing i saw on the porch that early the next morning was the melted ruined bike on the yeah tr trauma i'm telling you yeah. and my grandfather's paintings all burnt all of our clothes gone but i have a, a i gotta tell you the end part because an amazing thing happened that day because really as the as the sun rose into the sky, my father came home from the hospital. All the kids, you know, got back. There were people. It was a Sunday morning. And 
all, all the churches had collected money and kids mm. had gone around in their neighborhoods. They heard about the fire and people started showing up with like cans of money and, you know, and, wow. and furniture and boxes of clothes because we had all these kids and and gift certificates to restaurants and places where we could go and get free free stuff. And I'm telling you, it was it was such an outpouring of love. And everyone who spoke to me said, Maureen, you're so lucky. You are so lucky that no one was killed, that no one was yeah. hurt. And so what I started off in the beginning of that day feeling like this is the worst day of my life. My parakeet died. My bike was ruined. You know, all my stuff was gone. I felt like, wow, I ended up thinking this is the best day of my life because we have so much love. We have so much support. And all these people, you know, came together to um, for my family. Yeah, yeah it was that, amazing. That that part of it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, the, the shift of the mental, you yeah. know, um, mind shift to see the just the love that yeah. came out of everyone. Yeah. Didn't and, stop me from becoming an alcoholic, but, right. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a huge amount of shift and change for my family at that time. And that's, I think when my dad really started drinking heavy. Really? Hmm. Yeah. You think, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, I know this is just, uh, it's completely supposition, but if I'm, I would imagine if, if it was started by him and that, that there's some guilt that he can't, cannot swallow uh right. and and without some kind of way to to deal with that which oh i'm sure you know, yeah uh you know I, I bet he was uh uh i'm just guessing here too uh probably a tough man who you know that just he's not gonna go seek some help you know and and you know what my father was a very very gentle soul yeah he was a very meek mild-mannered you know, he was in advertising, he was a writer, huh. and and he was very gentle soul. That's all I can say about yeah. it. But but for a while, of course, in my, you know, mean, arrogant adolescence, uh, and my ego, you know, I, I, I thought he was weak and spineless. Yeah, it was right. only in yeah. my maturity, in my adult years, that I realized what a, a beautiful, peaceful man. There was nobody that had any bad things to say about him. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. And by, yeah. by strong, I meant more of the will. Like I'm not going to, I'll get through this on my own. The oh, typical yeah. male kind of thing that, uh, that would just really, and I don't know that that's, I can only speak from that. And I do believe it is true that, uh, that's tough. It's tough for men, especially a couple a generation ago kind of stuff to, uh, oh. reach out and say, I'm hurting. It's very true. In fact, he's, he had gone through uh, a 30-day alcohol treatment uh, program, and he started going to meetings, and he just couldn't get it. He, he kind of turned into a binge drinker, basically, mm -hmm. as opposed to a daily drinker, but still, um, he just couldn't get it. And, yeah. you know, there were, at times, we thought maybe he's just constitutionally incapable of being honest with himself. Mm. And I, you know, he had he had a lot to quote live up to his had a very strong willed father mm. and my grandfather and uh who was also very very successful and he was much more like his mom mm. yeah meek and mild and um and gentle and it's tough to be in a world with you know when when so much is demanded of you and and other people you know have ideas of what masculine should be and mm. all of that stuff but um, he 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 didn't get it. He didn't make it, and he's been gone now 
uh, probably 19 years mm. and he had pancreatic cancer, which I think is a direct result of, mm. of yep. the drink. Yep. Yeah. 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 Uh, how did, what, how'd you do in school? What was your, what, what'd you feel like as you was growing up school wise and all that? <laughs> I'm laughing because that was like a joke school. So here's the thing about school. Um, I, my best year when alcohol really worked for me was ninth grade when I was 14 years old. I started drinking when I was 13, but, um, and smoking pot and doing drugs and 14, it worked for me. I was yep. popular. I had the lead in the school play. I was also in, in, in what we call junior high, but now people call middle school. So seventh, eighth and ninth. Uh -huh. And then high school was 10, 11 and 12. So I was on the top of my grade. I got straight A's. I had boyfriends. I was like, cool because you know, there was, I, I can't even tell you, I was in the special singing choir. I was, uh, I was also smoking cigarettes. So that was the only year my voice really worked for me. I was in the school band. I played the flute. And again, I, I was creative. I was active and everything. And I really had a good, good time until um, a couple of traumatic events occurred at the end of ninth grade. Uh, very traumatic for me. And then ever after that, everything went downhill. So that summer I got mono, uh, I had fallen in love and I got hurt. And there was also um, um, some things that happened in my family and my parents weren't doing so well. And anyways, the long and the short of it is um, I, I started taking drugs and doing anything that anyone gave me. I was always sneaking out of the house in the middle of the night. There was um, actually an incidence of rape. There was mm. a lot of really difficult things that happened uh, in my life. And when I, I even skipped the first school, the first day of 10th grade, because I was so afraid to even go. I, I just didn't even know who I was at all. But I went. Oh, what a shift that, from ninth to 10th. Yeah. A completely different person almost. Completely. And in 10th grade, I actually missed I counted on old uh, report cards, 68 days of school. And there's wow. only like 180 in the whole year. Right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I was constantly skipping school, so much so that the first week of my junior year in high school, I spent in detentions, making up for the previous year's detentions I never went to. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, and the same thing in, in 12th grade. In 12th grade, I, I, they wanted me to spend a week in detentions before they would give me my schedule. Mm. And after the first day, I went down to the principal's office and I said, I'm not doing it. I'm going to quit right now or give me my damn schedule. And he gave it to me. Thank mm. God. And uh, I, they put me in a work study program. So I was able to leave work, uh, leave school every day at noon and go to work in the afternoon. And that's that's what I did. I did. I had some uh, activities like Distributed ed Education Clubs of America, DECA it's called. It was one of those things. And I was, I was the school store manager. Psh, it was so fun. So anyways, um, th there was a couple of teachers that really helped me through that senior year of high school. And I almost didn't make it because they wanted, because of all the school I skipped. Because like, if I didn't want to go, like, what the hell? I'm not going to go. That's, that's how I was. You know, it's like, you can't make me. I'm free agent here. Yeah. You know? <laughs> if there's an, a party or I need to get high or I'm going to the beach or it's too nice to go to school or there's an asshole in that class. I'm not going, you know, that's how I was. I just was like, you're not telling me what to do. 
Uh, I never wore shoes. I put cigarettes out with my bare feet. They were like leather. I shot darts and I smoked, you know, um, I, you know, I smoked all the time. I, I was constantly shooting, you know, shots and, and uh, I played pool and I, I just, yeah, I was that so- kind of. Sounds like a lot of fun. That kind of mo. I was mo. I could tell dirty jokes for hours. <laughs> I started drinking in bars when I was 16. The drinking age at that time was 18 in Connecticut. Mm. And uh, I just, you know, as soon as you get a license, you can change the date of right. you're yep. born. Yep. Nothing used, like it is today. Yeah, I used to do that for money. Alter driver's licenses when I was in high school. God bless you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> now uh, I'd kill you if you did that for my kid, right? Yep. 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 <laughs> Yep. Yeah, uh, it's crazy what we did. Yeah. Do you recall the first time you drank? Do you remember like what I do? Most I people do. do. Yeah, I was 13 years old and I drank a can of beer and I didn't really like the taste of it, but I loved how it made me feel. Hmm. It was a big old can of Michelob or something. And um, I was with, um, you know, some friends and we got all crazy and I couldn't wait for it to happen again. That was it every night. I was drinking a can or two of beer and uh, pretty soon by the time I, I quit drinking, gosh, 24 years old, I could pretty much drink beer all night unending. I, it hardly even affected me. If I had a couple shots, that was it. Or if I smoked pot or did drugs. Yeah. Not good. Yeah. That's why I gave up pot is because it was putting me under the table. I couldn't continue drinking and I didn't want things that would stop me from drinking. Uh, Right. Yeah, yeah, I was like, no, not this. Uh, it is in that 13, 14 year old time range. And that's why I went ding, ding, ding. I call them bell ringers because yeah. I hear, you know, there's a, in now, uh, I'm over a hundred interviews here doing this and 13 and 14 pop up probably 80 to 90% of the time when people start. Uh, and uh, I was talking to a young man just other last night, our home group meeting, we had a guy come in and it was uh, 26 and, you know, and that's it. And it's a number he threw out. He said, well, I started when I was 13. I'm like, well, yeah, you and all the rest of us, you know, uh, yeah, it, it is. There's a I've, pattern, you know, and I see that, you know, there's these same things and, and I didn't hear you say this one though, but cause then I didn't, I didn't, uh, you know, the other thing is how many people talk about not feeling like they fit in and they really had a lot of trouble, uh, feeling like they were a part of things, but it sounded like at least in the ninth grade, you were a part of everything. That was the only year it worked for me. I really have gone back and looked at that, but yeah, it's true. And I've interviewed a lot of people too. And I think most of us, 80% of alcoholics start early in their teens. It's a time not, I went, went off in sobriety and got my degree, my undergraduate degree in psychology. And mm. it's so prevalent that that age of 13 and 14 is when we break away from our parents. This is the time to break away from the pack and exert your independence. Uh, It's just that some personalities are much more apt to do that and rebel than other personalities, you know, depending on who you are. Um, But it doesn't matter which generation you come from. It's usually around that age. And in the seventies, it was, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I mean, that was, culture of america like right. it's what you did to break yeah. away yeah you know right. yep um, but my sister didn't like she just read books and played the clarinet yeah. and spoke french you know <laughs> yeah that is a good question since other siblings go down that road or 
Uh, my brother, my older brother and I, Larry, we were we were partiers. So we smoked and had the same circle of friends and we hung out together and did all that stuff together. Although he did not turn out to be an alcoholic, but mm. my youngest brother um, did, ended oh, up yeah. getting sober. He's got like, geez, six or seven years now. Oh, nice. Seven maybe? Yeah. 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 That's also, well, that's, that's another interesting thing to watch families and, and brothers and sisters grow up and some, you know, don't go that direction and others do, you know, and uh, I know, uh, at least I believe, or, uh, you know, what I've been taught is there's some genetic component to this thing, but it's certainly not an automatic thing. Uh, and then I've known uh, specifically a, a couple kids that I remember their dad was out, you know, raging. You just didn't want to be around. Like, I mean, right. you might, the car might be parked in the front yard. Uh, I was lucky, I'll tell you, because I've heard those stories too. And my dad, my dad, oh, thank God, wasn't like that. But yeah. still, he was absent. Yeah, yeah, right. He was emotionally completely unavailable. Yeah, and I watched yeah. those siblings. Uh, one of them said, "I'll never touch that stuff." You know, that was the message that they got because of yeah. watching that. And the other two ended up being such just like you know and uh yeah and it's it's just it's interesting you know the drinking was so normalized around my family i mean it was nothing for people to have beer now one thing i don't remember is people that demonstrated like alcoholism i have one uncle who i should say but you know he was so fun and happy all the time you know that's that's what he was but he drank all the time and he ended up uh he ended up coming home from work at 49 years old and sat down on his bed to take his shoes off and died right there Oh my! Uh, yeah, and I have a, a number of cousins and aunts and uncles that were we were all really close in the same town and all that, and uh, but just watching it and I, you know, so when I would say when I, I can describe that first time I got drunk, but I also remember you know uh, getting people beers and taking a sip off of it, and I had an uncle who loved to drink whiskey and water, and he would sit and he would sit in his recliner and we me and my they didn't have any kids and i think my mom and dad would rent me out to them once in a while rent me and my brother out to them once in a while and uh we would stay there and uh and and i and i love my, my uncle ronnie and janet loved them to death but uncle ronnie would sit there my mom's brother and stack cigarettes up i mean constantly just smoke one after the other and he would yeah. stack, he would stack them up in this ashtray like firewood you know they would be right in a row he didn't oh, you know he didn't just stub them out and uh and it would be a big pile of them and i remember when he would tell me you know he would have me stick my finger my finger in his drink and taste it you know and i do that you know and i remember one time when he got up to go to the bathroom uh and i reached over and i grabbed it and i took a drink of it you know and i'm thinking now you know what made you know it's interesting that i had that desire and this is single digits you know five six seven. Oh wow yeah uh and that's uh, because he normalized it yeah yeah uh, in my family, it was wine, but they had cocktails for dinner every night. Hmm. They had cocktails. So there was gin and tonic before dinner. Um, that was how their parents raised them. Their parents all had cocktail hours. It was always, you know, that's that was the culture in my family. And then, oh, and I would also tell you that both of my grandparents, my parents' parents were best friends. Right? So... So your my both, parents, your grandparents were best friends. Yeah, my parent, my grandparents were best friends with each other huh. as couples, right? And when their two kids kind of fell in love and decided to get married, they both 
got sat down and said, you better not screw this up because oh, hey, <laughs> oh we're friends and we don't yeah. want you ruining it. Right. And I remember the story goes that, you know, when, when they first got pregnant with my oldest sister and there was a baby between the two great, you know, grandfathers, and they really tied one on apparently that night talking mm. and hosting about how great this child was going to be because it came from them and, you know, all that stuff. But in my house, it was drinking wine. And so probably about, I don't know, I'm sure nine or 10 years old when I would start to say, you know, like at Christmas or Thanksgiving, right. can I have a sip? Can I have a little bit? And they would give me, you know, the little tiny bit in the, in the glass. And so I learned to love wine from an early age. And now even um, they still, they drink wine all the time. They'll have a, a, a bottle of wine. When I say they, I'm talking about like my mom and my sister, um, when we all, when the three of us get together and they'll have a bottle of wine and my mom drinks probably two glasses of wine every night. Yeah. And, and she, it's not, her life is not unmanageable. She wakes up every morning and does all the things she needs to do. She doesn't have hangover. She's not fallen. It's just, that's her culture. It's yep. always been that way. And that's how it is. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. She loves I, it. I know those folks, folks exist, but you know how we I all know. say, you know, it doesn't make any sense. And, and I think it's like a little bit of like a phantom thing, you know, I'm like, nah, not really. Uh, there's more. But to she's it not that, but. near as emotional as I am. I don't know about you, but I think that's the whole key for me. It's yeah. like, I didn't want to feel all that, that pain of betrayal and, and all the stuff, you know, I'm an empath and I pick up on other people's suffering and I pick up on my own suffering. And sometimes in, especially in those early years, I couldn't figure out whose pain it was, you know, yeah. was it mine or someone else's? And I, when you feel very deeply like that, you, you, you know, you get, you have, you learned it to, turn it off or do stuff something it. yeah to insulate yourself from it and yeah right yeah yeah my sponsors always said you know that thing about you know er yes everybody has these feelings that we have that we talk about now alcoholics anonymous place like that these this self-centeredness and all the stuff but uh the one he says uh his belief is is that alcoholics feel it harder hmm uh, and just if you just crank that volume up a little bit, then we, you know, need something to to shut her down. So mm -hmm. you did graduate high school, and did you go to college? Or I took a couple of classes, but I knew my mom. Well, she wanted me to go to college so bad, but in my family, we couldn't afford it. You know, my parents weren't about to pay for it, so I had to pay for it myself. I took a couple of classes and. I, I just, I didn't want to, I wanted to party. So I got a job, um, a full-time job and then a part-time job at night. And uh, that's what I did. <laughs> and I was in relationships and I just, I got a job in a bar so that I could always uh, make ends meet and also drink with all the guys that were there yeah, yeah. and, you know, flirt with anybody I wanted and get drunk at the same time, you know, right. drink for free because you can when you're working in a bar. So yeah, it was um, it was a lifestyle for me after that. Not yeah. a good one, but that's it, sometimes it's good because it brings you to your knees faster. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's uh, another one of the things is that uh, I watch some people, and once in a while we'll have some people flirting around with this thing, and uh, and I almost you know when they finally have something critical happen, uh, it makes me happy. You know, it's funny that you know I'm like, all right, now something is. Oh, you're desperate. Yeah. Yeah. Now you <laughs> got a chance. Yeah. <laughs> now you got a chance. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I, I did go out there for quite a few years. I, I, I ruined my reputation and um, I was not happy. I was constantly searching for more. I knew I had more potential, but I didn't know how to access it. I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I, didn't, I knew if I didn't go to college, I wasn't gonna really amount to much. I went from working at a toy manufacturer in accounts payable to Colt Firearms. Oh, right? really? Yeah. yeah. So I worked in the custom gun shop there for a couple of years. Man, I like that. I had a great time because I was in the shop with a whole bunch of guys, yeah. right? Doing engraving on these guns and all that stuff. And every Friday afternoon, there was drinking. Okay. We had those machines, Coke machines that it would pour out Coke, a cup of ice with Coke in the, you know, would pour it out like it. So you just had a freestanding cup. And then the big boss would come around with the rum and you would just pour the rum right into the Coke. And I, I mean, people were leaving, clocking out and going home drunk after having three yeah. of those, you know, it's, it was crazy. But again, um, I was one of the guys, I never wore makeup. I didn't have a pocketbook. I didn't, I, I was Mo. I just was, I felt like I was always wanted to be one of the guys and having grown up with four brothers that was easy enough you know to to fit right in that was how i felt like i fit in Um, but i always had one girlfriend that we would go to the bars together if i wasn't in a relationship if i was in a relationship then i was shooting darts and shooting pool in the bars with the guys right yeah and uh so that was what i did for a a few years and then a a long-term relationship i had for a couple of years i had moved out from my home at 19 and i moved in with a man who was 12 years older than me and he ended up um oh well we we ended up i left him we split up and that was when uh, i really started going downhill and i started thinking that the reason I was so messed up was because of my father. And the reason I was so messed up was because of Connecticut. Connecticut sucked and these people sucked and whatever. And, and I, I just was always blaming people, places and things for my discomfort. But I did start going to Al-Anon, believe it or not, because again, I I thought the reason I was so messed up was because of my dad. And, you know, I was, I'd get out of there and go drinking. It was just, that's kind of, that's the kind of stupid, right? But I also learned a lot and I learned that I, it didn't get better. Alcoholism was a progressive disease. Anyways, I decided to take the geographical cure and I picked uh, San Antonio, Texas, because that's where my roommate at the time had a brother that lived there. So I decided to go there I just because I had some place to go. I bought a one-way ticket. I felt so brave. I sold everything I had. I got rid of all my stuff. I just took a couple of suitcases and I moved down there. And I lived with him for four months before I got my own place. But I got a job as a teller in a bank. It was a pretty responsible job. And I thought, I am going to change my life. I am going to do things different. And within a year... I created all the same freaking chaos that I had created back home. And uh, after two years, I was, you know, I was really hurting and a series of things happened. I ended up getting to uh, being 
transferred to Austin, Texas with my job. I was working my way up in a wholesale picture frame supply company. And I, I ended up, I was in a relationship with the manager, branch manager, and I was the customer service manager. We were together for about a year. And when they moved us to Austin. And then shortly after we got there, he did not want to move in together. We had been living together in San Antonio, but he said, no, he wanted his own place. So we both got our own apartments and then they shipped him to Phoenix Mm -hmm. and they made me the branch manager. So suddenly I was alone and I was drinking alone. I was super stressed out. Every time I couldn't stand drinking alone anymore, I would drive to San Antonio to go back and see my friends there And I had a series of really bad um, experiences and, you know, things like getting pulled over in the middle of the night, waking up out of a blackout with a cop in my face, you know, Mm, that kind of stuff. And um, one time I woke up at like 11 in the morning and the phone was ringing. I was like, what? And I picked up the phone. It was a teller. My, uh, this was a, was that in San Antonio? Anyways, yeah, there was a lot of bad things that happened. Oh, that was why, because I was in the wrong town to go to work. Mm. I, you know, and they were like, where are you? It's like, it's like 11 o'clock. I'm like, what? what? And I was in San Antonio. I should have been in Austin at eight o'clock opening the branch. Yeah, it was not good. <laughs> so it, it was just bad. And I realized I actually had started back going to Al-Anon and working the steps in Al-Anon and I had told my sponsor that I thought I might be an alcoholic and she had me talk to her husband and he told me his story. And then I told him mine and it was the first time I had ever heard my story. Hmm. And I realized that, Oh my God, I haven't ever really gone more than three or four days without drinking since I was 13 years old. And the only reason I did that was because I had to, because I had, I had to be on medication where you couldn't drink. Yeah. Some circumstances would permit it. Right. So anyways, I, I, I just realized I was, and I did go to my first AA meeting and um, I really consider that to be the first miracle in my life. Hmm. And I, when I went through those doors and I was broken, I despised myself. I, I hated who I had become because I was so out of alignment with who I was supposed to be. And, um, I woke up in places I never should have been. I, I've had death threats. I've had people follow me home. I've had stalkers. I've had oh, all kind. I've had been drugged. I mean, a lot of crappy things that happened when I was out there. And here I was, knowing that I had so much potential, and yet I couldn't harness it. But I was a functional drunk. I went to work every day, except for when I woke up yeah, out of a blackout at eleven a.m. Yeah. except for when somebody drugged me, but see, that was me making excuses. Right. So yeah, it was bad. And then I, I, I came into the rooms and I got sober and I just worked that program. I, every day. And I went to therapy, a group therapy program outside of the, the rooms. I got myself a daddy sponsor. I did my healing. I worked my steps and I really had a major transformation. I changed everything about my life. Uh, and it was okay because I was in Austin. I didn't really know a lot of people there yet, right? Because yeah, right, I had been yeah. drinking alone. I got a new job, an individual contributor role, and I became a lot better person. About a year and a half was when I moved back to Connecticut. 
Oh, really? Yeah. So you did, yeah. you moved back home pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I mean, did because in the I grand was so scheme sick of things. Yeah, spending all my money going to Connecticut on vacation. I didn't <laughs> I didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted yeah. to go to other places. You spoke yeah. about that first meeting and you said, did you how how did you feel walking in there? Did you feel this uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth. How was that when you were, went into the first one? Well, it's actually a pretty cool story. I I walked into that first meeting and there was a probably about uh, 50 people in the room and at least 10 Diff, you know, or or twenty people were hugging, like mm. a bunch of people were hugging each other and welcoming each other, and I was just like, "Oh my God, I don't know any of these people." I was so hurting, I was so withdrawn, and I didn't want to make eye contact with anyone. I slipped in, I sat in a seat, and I kept my head down. And when you're looking down and not meeting anybody, nobody talks to you, you know, yep. you, <laughs> and that's because that's what I wanted. I just wanted to be invisible and observe. And I, I was looking around and I didn't know if I was really an alcoholic or not. I wasn't ready to admit it. I, you know, it took me about six days before I said I was in, I would say, hi, my name is Maureen. I'm an adult child of an alcoholic <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> until I finally related enough to know that I was. But anyways, I was sitting there and it turned out that this particular meeting was a uh, a chip meeting or a medallion celebrating years and, and months of sobriety. And so they started to give out the chips and the whole meeting was just people who were coming to receive their medallion if it was, you know, during for that month if they had gotten a, a, a whatever. And the first one had 30 days and then there was a couple with 60 and so forth. And it went up and there was like four people that had a year of sobriety. And I remember thinking, Oh my God, yeah. that's amazing. That's so amazing. And then they kept going and they would tell like a two minute story, you know, like, or just thank a couple of people. I just really want to thank my sponsor. She yep. gave me a pink bat, you know, so I yep. wouldn't beat myself up or whatever, you know, yep. and it was pretty cool. And I listened to all their stories but I kept, I could feel this despair rising higher and higher every time somebody else got, well, this person has 10 years, this person has 12, this person has 13 years, this person has 20, you know? And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe it. And the last two people that got chips that night had 33 years of sobriety. Yeah. And I was only 24 years yeah. old, you know, <laughs> and, and, and I was already like devastated with my life. Right. And, and, and one of them's name was Fred and the other one's name was Hope. Oh, wow. And the tears started streaming down my face. I could mm. still get emotional when I think about hope. I said to myself, oh my God, it's a sign. Maybe there's hope for me. Mm. Maybe there's hope for me. Maybe I could do this. And so after everybody finished their clapping and they wrapped up the meeting with the Lord's prayer, somebody said in my little section, geez, nobody got a chip in our little section, you know, whatever. There was like eight sections around the room, yeah. you know, and, and, um, and I said really quietly as I was picking up my pocketbook, it's going to be a long fucking time before I get one of those, <laughs> like Eeyore would say, yeah, you know, yeah. and suddenly, you know, hands shot out from everywhere on my shoulder, on my knee, it's uh, keep coming, it's okay, you know, and suddenly people were talking to me, and just come back, come back again tomorrow, what's your name, and you know, that sort of thing, Yeah. so I did that, and after, and I shared a bunch, and after about 
12 days of sobriety, um, it snowed in Austin, Texas. And they don't have snow removal equipment there. So I was able to, I mean, I couldn't get to the meeting. I had to, I just had to stay home. And what I, what did I do? I got out my bowl and I scraped the screen and all the mm. resin out of my bowl and I made a little pile of resin and I just, I put it back in there and I just smoke a couple of hits every hour and I just kept myself going all day so I could, I could make it through till I got back to the next meeting the next day. And that night I went to get my mail at the end of the day and I got a card from my mom and she had sent me this beautiful letter about how proud she was of me that I was do that I was in AA and that, and how much she loved me and, and that she'd been praying for me and all this stuff. And, and, uh, and she sent me that little footsteps prayer. Yeah. And it was the first time I had ever read that. And I bawled my eyes out. And I mm. went to the meeting the next day and I cried and I told everybody, oh, I know what you mean by powerless over marijuana because I smoked pot yesterday because I was I couldn't get to a meeting. And this big groan went up, you know, in the audience. And and after the meeting, I asked this woman, Michelle, to be my sponsor. And she said, OK, you're on day one. You're on step one. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm on day 14. I've been sober for 14 days. She said, oh, no, 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 no. You smoked a mood altering chemical. That is not sobriety. And so today's your, you know, the first day of the rest of your life. And that was February 3rd, 1985. And she, and she, I said, you know what? To myself, I said, I'm going to make it damn well worth it. If I'm going to have to start all over again, like 14 days was like forever yeah, for me yeah. to stay there. And I'm going to, I'm going to go buy a freaking 12 pack on my way home. And I'm going to drink myself silly and I'll freaking start tomorrow because I'm not going to waste this on a bowl of resin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Instant she, resentment. Right. She saw the look in my eyes. She said, you're not going anywhere alone. I'm coming with you. So she oh, came wow. home with me and she helped me throw out all my paraphernalia and even the, you know, mirrors and the razor blades. She mm -hmm. said, you don't plan on killing yourself, do you? So I got rid of all that. And that really was the first day of the rest of my life. And it's been an amazing, amazing life that yeah. I've been able to create for myself because of it. And I I haven't told that amount of detail in my story for a long time. Oh, so. <laughs> yeah. Oh, cool. Thank so you for doing that here. That's certainly the word that came to mind as I come out of my, I didn't really, you know, so much of this happens in the rear view mirror, right? That, but hope is definitely, I said, I walked out of that meeting with a big bucket of hope and that's something I hadn't had maybe my entire life. And, uh, yeah. you know, it didn't stick then just like, but, uh, but still it uh, planted that seed and it ended up being the catalyst for, uh, what I have in my life today for sure. But, uh, I just love that watching that, that energy when a newcomer comes in and somebody brand new and we, uh, my, my very first sponsor said, you said you couldn't make eye contact. He says, yeah, they come in kicking her shoestrings and, uh, and you know, looking down and, and everything. Yeah, yeah and, it's true. And how the group joins up and comes and surrounds this person yeah. with love and, uh, and watch that impact on that individual as they begin to feel that and absorb it, whether, you know, whether if they're still kicking and screaming or not, you know, some of them completely bask in it. And some of them have got the rejection screens up because they don't know what to do with all that love. And, uh, it is, it's a great thing. We had a, we had a brand new guy come in last night and it just, just, 
it's just unreal energy what happens in those rooms when 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 that when that love button gets hit fully like that you know there's something about that energy vibration of love right you you can feel it you can feel angst right when you walk yep. into a room when everybody's freaking you know freaked out about something or anxious you can feel that you can when you walk into my AA group, home group room, and there's 75 people in the room, which I haven't experienced in a year now. But yeah. you know, there there is an incredible amount of love there. You can feel the higher level energy vibrations. I don't care how low you're feeling when you walk in there, you just feel better. And yeah. people know, people notice. And we have greeters and and that and when any ever anybody is new, when you say welcome, oh, I haven't seen you around here before, and what's your name? Oh, are you new here? And, and they'll usually say, this is my first meeting or, oh, I'm just new here. You know, you can tell the difference. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, we you always know, you just introduce them with someone, like you said, and they get surrounded by love. It is a wonderful thing to see them yeah. like just light up the next time they come in. Like, oh, my gosh, I have friends here. I just haven't met yet. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We will. Uh, my men, my home group is a men's group. And uh, and you people are physically affected by the energy of the love and yes. passion of one when they walk in there and they, you can't help it, you know, and I watch some people want to watch some people that can't deal with it, you know, and they, oh, I know. They, they, they can't even make it through the meeting. You know, they, they both parked the way through, you know, and they're just, yeah. it's, just it's too much for them. And then, you know, you get those ones once in a while, man, where they're just like completely like blindsided by it and they just lay themselves open to it. And you watch somebody, you know, you get to see those first days, and then, you know, then you watch them get their one year and yeah, you know, yeah. And, and just make that progression. It's just so beautiful. Uh, the Today there was a meeting and uh, they were asking what your very favorite thing to do in sobriety was. And, uh, and my favorite thing to do is to help other people get sober and be a part of that. Watch that. That is my very favorite activity. They were looking for like, what do you like to do? Like, do you like to go fishing? Do you like to go, you know? Uh, no, man, I like to watch people bloom. Yes, I totally agree. Uh, I did that for years. I will tell you, though, that after, gosh, I don't know. Um, well, I met my husband when I was like a year and a half sober. Mm -hmm. And he was also a year and a half sober. Unbeknownst to me, he had gotten sober like three weeks before me, but we were living in different states at the time. Mm -hmm. And then I, I moved up here and um, we met at a meeting uh, before I even moved back here, but I was home for a funeral and it was, it was interesting anyways. Um, and then we got together and we ended up falling in love very quickly. And we got married at about three years of sobriety and we had a baby when I was, my baby shower was on my five-year anniversary really cool. and she was born at the end of february and now she's 31 years old she's gonna be 31 in oh she just turned 31 at the end of february yeah so it's march now yeah yep, <laughs> like already <laughs> so yeah and um it's just unbelievable how fast the time has gone by but there was a period of time from around i think i was around eight eight years sober until I was about 15 years sober. That's like seven years. I didn't go to meetings. Hmm. I know. I had stopped going to meetings because I was working full time, raising a family, and I had 
in my first couple of years of sobriety, when I first moved back a year and a half um, sober to move back to Connecticut, and then I met, you know, Paul, and I also got myself a sponsor right away. And I had two people that I was sponsoring. And so we created a little group and then it grew by one and then another one. Um, and then eventually, it, you know, it, you know, that's it. it. We're at six now and we've been together for 35 or 33 years or whatever it is. And that alone, we were meeting a couple of times a month. So that carried me over. I didn't, I just didn't need it. And I was working full time and I started helping people at work. So I was doing, um, you know, mentoring at work and training at work. And I just, I was fulfilled. I felt like I don't need AA anymore. I'm good. I, I got it going on. And, at, and my husband was a drug and alcohol counselor, substance abuse uh, counselor. And so he would come home from being in, you know, helping people in treatment all day. And after 10 years of that, like he was burnt out. He was like, or even sooner than that, but he, he was like, I'm not going to a meeting. I've just been walking around in it all day long. Like I'm living it. Like we're living our program now all my friends, all my, you know, my, my family, yeah. everything is sobriety. Um, but it was probably, I was about 15 or 16 years sober when one of my friends in, in our group, in our, my little group of six uh, was speaking somewhere or something. And I said, Oh, I'll go, I'll go and support you. That'll be fun. And I walked in that room and there were, and I heard her speak and there was sharing going on. And I just felt like, Oh my God, I, you know, I just miss this so much. I, why am I not going to these meetings? Like, what is wrong with you? You know what I mean? Like, I, I yeah. really, it was amazing. So I did start going back uh, to a meeting and honestly, for probably 15 years, it's just, it's basically just the one meeting a week, Yeah. but it's my home group and I love it. And I've been running it online now for this past year because I have an, you know, a zoom account. And so I've been yep. running a zoom meeting and I happen to be the treasurer, but I've been doing a lot of service work in the past 10 years in various, you know, committees, um, at the district level or the area level and, oh, and yeah. things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So oh, now I'm just, at the club level. Yeah. When you said you didn't go to meetings, though, you still were getting, you know, you were still having a meeting. You, I was living. You, all were, you weren't just going to the, going to a named meeting out on town. You all No, were I just had a private, couple of private meetings a month. Yeah. yeah. Plus yeah. I had my sponsor and I could pick up the phone anytime I wanted. And we lived it in my, you know, in my relationship too. We, we live the steps, you know, and we, we have studied enough to know and we do yeah. readings every morning now and we're very um, that's super cool to have that connection that long-term yeah. connection like that that's something i'm enjoying today is this uh growing together thing you know because uh, just at january was six years for me you know so it's still new really and i'm really glad that i kind of still feel that way when i don't is when real new people come in you know then uh, they make you feel like you got a million years it keeps and, it uh, green as we yeah, say yes. yep, 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 yep. but to grow yeah. and to have an established uh you know it, well, they're my brothers you know they really are they're they're uh, your family yeah. they are they're yeah. our family now that's how i feel about my sunday morning meeting yeah yeah i love a, those people so much 
that uh, but I also about- know that I can walk into any meeting anywhere. Like we've gone on cruises together, Paul mm-hmm. and I, and and we go down to the meetings and we meet people from all That's over. Fun. And it's like, hey, friend of Bill's, yeah, you know, and and we have a meeting and it's yep. great. Doesn't yep. matter where you are. Doesn't make any difference where you are. I've had the luxury of going to or the uh, of meetings all over the place. I've been to, in the world too. I've been to a meeting in. Thailand and in Japan, those oh, are my two cool. international ones. And uh, wow, uh, I got to, I got sent to Japan uh, a week after I had got off probation, and the trip was supposed to happen for work like five or six months earlier. And I was on probation, and my probation officer said, "Nope, nope, nope, you're not going." And I'm like, "I don't know what I'm going to tell my employer whenever it comes down because I didn't, they didn't oh. know, they didn't know any of it." Okay, and. Uh, and for I was on home incarceration for nine months or basically a year. Um, and I was afraid I had traveled all the time and I was scared to death. They'd asked me to travel and they never did during that time. And, uh, I could, you know, I talk about watching that stuff, the source out there while looking out for me. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. I totally get it. It's like, and, Oh, thank you. God does for us what we can't do for ourselves. Yep. And that, uh, that, that trip kept on getting postponed and I was on an airplane 10 days after I was off probation. And then, uh, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't, I said, yeah, I hadn't been able to like leave the County without the permission of the, the state, the, the corrections officers, uh, for two years. And then boom, I'm standing on the other side of the world. (laughs) Wow. How long were you there for? We were there three weeks. We were okay. went over for some training and got to really spend some time there and, uh, and, Beautiful. Yeah, and, and sit in meetings where there was where, uh, I couldn't understand a word they were saying and they couldn't understand the word I was saying, but it didn't matter. Wow. That was so cool. Yeah. I mean, you'd have a couple of people who could get by with English, but for the most part in the AA meetings there that, you know, in the work environment, there's a lot of people could speak English, but when I went to the meetings, it was very no. limited to how much. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I still have my little pamphlet they gave me. I've got the 12 steps in Japan and Japanese and it's a little meeting book kind of thing. That's uh, pretty cool. And so still though, even just sitting there, you know, you're with other people who have the same disease as you do. Yeah. And even if you can't, you know, understand it or hear it, you can feel it. You could. You still feel it. Yep. Right. That's the saying. Exactly. Uh, it did not matter a bit that we couldn't understand one another. And they even asked me to share, you know, and I could tell, you know, I'm sitting here talking and I'm thinking these people, can't, <laughs> they don't understand a freaking word I'm saying. And, uh, and, and it didn't, it didn't make any difference at all because the energy That's was there. Cool. And uh, yeah, 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 we are, can go, go uh, participate in our recovery anywhere and we're home no matter where we're at. Well, that's what's so cool about um, Clubhouse, too, because now we get to meet these people from all over and different. And it's not uh, AA per se, but it's sobriety and it's yeah. recovery. Yeah. Right. Right. And some people talk about the steps, but it's cool that you can talk about so many other topics there, too. Yeah. 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 It doesn't have the, you know, the the rules around the traditions, you know, some groups are less strict about that. My men's group is not very strict at all when it comes to that stuff. You know, we, we, we run pretty fast and loose shit, but uh, certainly a partake in meetings that, uh, cause that's why I was kind of wondering about, you know, you had the pot, right. And when just in 2011, when I first, my first AA meeting, and I'll say it's my first AA meeting that I went with a third tradition that I true desire. Cause I got some DUIs and stuff back when I was a kid and they, 
corridor me to AA and I don't remember any of it. Uh, so it wasn't technically my first meeting, but uh, a couple guys, you know, hushed me about the drug thing. Oh, geez. You know? Really? Yeah. 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 No, I have never had any for many, many years. I identified. Hi, my name is Maureen. I'm a drug addict, alcoholic. I, I said that for many years. I never had anyone say, hey, you know, we only talk about drinking. here." Nobody's ever said that to me. And I'm I'm I, I don't I, I don't want to say old, but right. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. old now. <laughs> yeah. Thirty six years ago was a little while ago. Right. When, you know, when I was 24, but that's the thing, you know, as we age and we mature, I don't know about you, but I still feel like, you know, I have a very young spirit and, um, you know, young attitude, I guess is what Mm -hmm. I want to say. And I think that's because I know how to enjoy life now. Yeah. And I know how to really uh, wrangle it in and feel the different levels of the energy, like we were talking about and listen to my higher self um yeah so it's and meditate and really hear you know what is the next step and you know what it always is take care of yourself develop others take care of yourself and take care of others and don't hide away just enjoy your life give it back give it back and you know help other people get the next leg up because we're in this together, man. You know, we just can't, we shouldn't have to do it alone. So that's been my sort of mantra all these years. And um, I'm so happy to be out of the corporate environment. So that, you know, 27 years in that job. And, and now I've been out for like eight years and it's so freeing and so fun. And sometimes even I've been doing leadership training across yeah. New England for my job. And there have been some times where I have felt the urge within my, you know, within my intuition that said, these people need to hear your story. Yeah. And it doesn't happen often, but every once in a while, I will say, you know what? I need to tell you guys something. Or, you know, this thought occurs to me, if I hope you don't mind me sharing. I was a drug addict and an alcoholic in my during my teenage years, my early 20s. And I had a major transformation. So don't tell me that people don't change. I will tell you that people do change. And here's how I've seen many, many people change. And I will and I'll share. And inevitably somebody after those meetings will come up and say, I got sober in yeah. you know <laughs> 2006 or whatever, you know, they'll whisper to me like, or they'll be loud about it. It doesn't matter. But, yeah. um, but that's the thing when you're in a corporate environment, a lot of people don't want, you know, don't, nobody should know because there used to be a big stigma to it. I think now more and more we're becoming much more open as a society mm-hmm. that we escape far too much. And there's too much mental illness now and you know and substance abuse and people are dying every day yes and honestly even the whole idea of anonymity is lifting because we cannot hide in the shadows anymore we need to shine our light and tell people you can recover from this you don't it's you don't have to do it alone and it's you know it's there's so many paths to recovery just like there's many paths to God or there's many paths to finding yourself. And so anyways, that's what I want to bring. It's yep. this hope she's holding up a sticker. With, uh... Yes. I got this from somebody I met. I don't know. Maybe it was, I don't know. Instagram. I think the hope dealer project 
This is uh, from pluspproductions.com. Like yes, yeah. I'm a I'm hope a dealer. dealer. I'm a dealer. I'm a hope dealer, a dealer instead of hope. a dope dealer. <laughs> that is very cool. I like that a bunch. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, you know, and when I, of course, when I just made the decision to start this podcast and, and, and I always say, you know, I don't do anything without my sponsor is actually my best friend. Uh, we are so nice. close now together today. It's, uh, it's, it's a miracle. Uh, but I don't do anything like I, my little thing I say is I say, I don't do anything. If I'm doing anything, any important, then more important than buying new underwear. I talk to my sponsor about it. You know, I, I, we're just, we just are in each other's daily dialogue and we, yeah. we touch base and we know what's going on, but these kind of things, you know, and I, you know, I knew my anonymity was going to get blown out the window when I started doing this. Right. And, of course. Uh, yeah, so you, you know, had to register that a little bit, but uh, I'm with you. I believe that, uh, you know, if I hold my anonymity too tight, I lose, I miss opportunities to help people. And that's not what we're supposed to be out here doing. Uh, like you said, I'm not, not supposed to be hiding it. And, and you're right about that. You know, and, and I understand. And, uh, sometimes I'll say some stuff and people take a little offense to it. Cause there's some people that still have some hardcore ties to the traditions, you know, and, uh, and people won't do this podcast because of it. Yeah, I know. Me and, too. And, uh, and, and I think that's a bit antiquated today. You know, the, the stigma that was on the people when the big book was written and was a whole different world than what we have today. It's uh, very and, true. You know, employers uh, have to treat this like an illness, you know, they can't, you That's know, right. You, you can't, you're not going to get fired for, uh, now you can, if you continue, <laughs> you know, that can yeah. be an outcome. You're not protected at that level, but yeah. you get, you get a chance anyway. And, uh, so, you know, and, and I like what you said, you know, you feel pushed or nudged or whatever. I always say it's like a nudge from above. And, and I really do at times when I like something, somebody will be standing in front of me and I'll be someplace and, and, and I'll feel that, that like, okay, I'm supposed to say something, you know, I'll look up in the air, you know, okay, well, you know what, uh, I'm a lot of times it's sort of sober. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sometimes it even comes in meetings right so a lot of times i would just go to meeting after meeting and just listen not say anything and then one day i'll be in the meeting listening and i'll start feeling really anxious and that's my cue like oh crap i have to share you know yeah. <laughs> or oh i guess i'm supposed to say something like it sometimes i don't even know it's not a head thought it's a body thought yeah, right. somebody needs to hear your message today maureen and so yeah. i take it and even whenever I do share or I do speak, I mean, um, I think so long as at least one person gets something out of this, I'm good, you know, and yep. the more I share, sometimes I learn things about myself because as an extrovert, I often think out loud and I do, I do learn things when I'm sharing, when I'm talking because we ask God, don't we? We ask our higher power before we even begin. Please, God, speak through me. Let me share whatever message is supposed to come out today. And if somebody needs some healing, you know, help me to find it for them or help me to, to you know, to be there for that. And just that little prayer, it really means a lot. And it does allow us to get out of our ego a little bit more and yep. put ourselves out there a little bit more, but it's a scary thing starting a podcast or writing yeah. a blog and telling people your story. And at first I was like, Oh my God. But in the, in the end, I realized that's absolutely who I am now. And it, it, my whole life has been recovery first, yeah. you know, relationship second, 
and you know god is always on the forefront or you know my spirituality and um yeah and now it's all about develop yourself develop others and it doesn't stop you think i think sometimes especially like when i'm in clubhouse and i'm listening to all these different people from everywhere it's so easy to start comparing yourself yep and i'm like damn I'm 36 years sober. Like I should be, I, I should be blah, blah, blah. And, and then I have to stop myself. Well, okay. You know, I'm not responsible for the first thought, but I am responsible for the second thought. But instead of saying, shut up, you know, I say, uh, thank you for sharing. Please be quiet to my inner voice, my right. inner critic. Yeah. Like, I, you know, I, I'm still just doing the best I can with what I have. And I do, I have a lot more tools and I have a lot of experience but even in the past couple of weeks, I've been studying some new things that I'm learning about myself and finding that maybe a certain strategy that I've been using hasn't really been working for me. And I am getting the message that I need to wait to respond, stop trying to make things happen, but step back and let go and let God. I'm constantly being reminded you have to surrender. Stop trying to control everything, you know? Yeah. So that's that's a big thing for me. Yeah. Let let said, it go. Easier said than done, but you know some of early recovery was teaching me that, you know, and I kept on finding my these spots where I really wanted to take some action in some certain things and my sponsor would, you know, back me off of it and just let's see what goes on. You don't, you don't have to make any change today. You don't have to, and you know, and these things would resolve in a way that I couldn't have guessed. Yeah. I couldn't have orchestrated, you know, and it would be better, you know, and he'd remind me, you think you could have done any better than that? And uh, <laughs> like, those are oh. the miracles, Dan, yep, they are right. The first, I, I say like the first miracle was when I walked through the door and I had the uh, the presence to listen to that nudge and get, through, get into the program. And the second one was about three months sober when the desire to drink finally left me. Mm. Second miracle, no doubt. The third miracle happened uh, about 10 months sobriety and when I realized that God was not outside of me anymore. Yeah. I realized that that, that God was within me. That yeah. was a freaking miracle because that came in self-acceptance and self-awareness, uh, like deep self-awareness, um, big miracle. And then, I mean, the miracles have never stopped. Right, yep. The miracles have never stopped if you look for them. Yeah. If I, you I, expect I them, you know, yeah. You gotta, you gotta look for them. You gotta be aware and you know, when you get too caught up in all the ego crap of the day, you, you become, yeah, you become wrapped up. You don't see miracles. You get depressed or you get, you know, but every time you go back to the first step or, or the 11th step or whatever, you know, whatever you want yeah. to look, call it. Um, and you do that surrender. It's suddenly there's a miracle again. Yeah. 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 It's so fun it's to help a new, you know, my sponsor was so good at pointing that stuff out to me. You know, he kept on, you know, he would, he, we had this little thing and it started on a particular item that happened in my life, but he said, do you, you know what that is, don't you? And, uh, and, and, and I remember I started off with my intellectualizing going to tell him what it, what it, what this was, you know? And, uh, and he goes, well, let me tell you something newcomer. And he would tease me and he'd say, uh, when your sponsor asks you, you know what that is? your response should be, no, I don't. Why don't you tell me? 
And uh, so we have a little running thing. And whenever we see miracles or whenever things go, we joke around today and we say, you know what that is, don't you? And it is so fun to be to to help uh, new people see those things that are changing in their lives, because uh, I always like to say, I don't see me that well. You know, I, I really don't. I don't see me and I don't see my I'm better at a lot better today. But we don't we don't have the eyes to see these things that have happened to you, you know, chalking things up to coincidence when you've been doing this work and things are working out for you. And like, no, this is this is because you're on the path, man. These things are happening because of this. And don't kid yourself. You step off this path. Those things can go away really, really quick. It's very true. And, uh, you know, watch people, you know, we had, we lost a friend just not long ago that was on the path and was, things were going good. And, uh, and I've always heard this saying that sticks with me. Don't let the, don't let the life AA give you, don't let the life AA gave you get in the way of your AA life. And mm-hmm. as we get our stuff back and life starts going good right. and you start saying, well, I don't really need a meeting tonight. I don't, you know, and you start drifting away, you know, and the next thing you know, this guy was drinking and he was driving down the road and, uh, and wrecked his car and died. Damn. And, uh, you know, had just, uh, I'd never been more happy for a guy getting his one year because he had been trying for longer than I'd been around for some eight years or something to get a year. And, uh, he had 11 months at times and went back out. Uh. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, and then it ended up being that tragic story, you know, and that is tragic. I hate the stories like that, but they're, but they're also, they're heartbreaking, but they remind us you you can't, you have to have constant vigilance, right. And connection. You have to stay connected. If you're feeling disconnected, you're responsible. People can't read your mind. They are not going to come and rescue you. You have to reach out and do it. So yeah, I'm an adamant believer of that. And I also tell people all the time, whenever I hear their story, oh my God, you can, you better never drink again. Because yeah. <laughs> they said, we say, oh, one day at a time, one day at a time. Yeah, well, not you. Not you better you. never drink again. And sometimes I got to tell you, I've had people come back to me years later and say, you know, one time you told me you better never drink again. And it stuck with me. <laughs> you know, because. Sometimes you do. I have had, I had a friend um, whose husband had 33 years of sobriety and went back out and lost his sobriety and then struggled for about six years in and out of the program. At this point, I think he's got like two years now, but Mm -hmm. it's hard. It's hard to come back after that, but thank God he is back and, you know, but it ended in divorce, their relationship. It didn't work out because I don't know, but I think that's why he went back out drinking because he just didn't like who he was anymore. And, you know, but there's so many reasons we can't figure it out. Nope. But um, I, it's one of the reasons why I coach now, because I really love to see the shifts in people. I love to be able to provide the path or shed some light, but it's the people that are doing the work. You know, it's, it's, it's the, when clients invest in themselves and really want to grow, they grow like crazy. And I just absolutely love watching it. So the truth is, I really don't work with newcomers so much anymore. I still hear them and I'll, you know, I'll applaud them and I, you know, will do anything I can in the first, but I don't like temporary sponsor them or I don't walk people through the steps right at the beginning anymore. Um, I've done that work. I, I leave that to the younger generation now or the yeah, the people like, you know, like you and people who have 
who are really still um, really involved in that at that level. But a lot so of those, times people can't relate to me. They're like, yeah. "What? You've been sober all your adult yeah. life?" Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, I see that you know, and I hear people talk about the same thing, uh, similar kind of stories. But you're still doing things that like fill those those uh essential requirements that we learned then like doing that helping other people you yeah. know the, ser the service in your life and and uh, even though you do it for an occupation it still fulfills that spot in your life that where you're pouring you into other people and that's essentially what sponsorship is you know and it's a i think it's yes. a, in order to have a successful life and i don't I, you know I, i'm 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 of the belief that the 12 steps are really just ancient spiritual principles there's nothing new in them they were just packaged up in a way that alcoholics could hear it uh that that's a that that's a that's an essential thing for a happy life is to help other people yeah that's and what we're here know, for yeah when it comes right down to it um, I think that all of the skills that we learn in recovery are really very, it's easy for people with five or 10 years of sobriety to step into leadership positions because now they know dependability, reliability, consistency. They know how to build trust with people. <laughs> they know how to listen. They, they have empathy. Mm -hmm. um, they have the confidentiality, they have self-awareness, self-confidence. I mean, there's so many skills. I have a list of 23 of them. I just gave you nine off the top of my head, but there's so many skills that lend themselves to leadership. And, and that's what I teach. And so as I'm training leaders, I'm like, these are all skills that alcoholics have. Recovering alcoholics have these skills. We should all be leading, but we don't because we, we just don't you know, a lot of times people don't see themselves as leaders, but I'm thinking, well, are you sponsoring? Yeah. Are you leading meetings like facilitating meetings? Yeah. Have you taken a service commitment? Yeah. Well, then you're a leader. Are you the head of your family? Yeah. Are you doing volunteer work in the community? Yeah. Well, then why don't you step up and lead people at work? It says practice these principles in all our affairs, right? <laughs> like, Let's do it. Let's start showing people the real way to live. Yeah. And be that kind of example, because that's what leadership is, in my opinion. Yeah. And we also have really good bullshit detectors. Yeah, we do. We do. <laughs> but we can help people to grow because we know how to do that. We know how to do it. Yep. So. We we've experienced that growth. So then, therefore, you have the tools to help yes, others do. grow, too. Totally. Yeah. So just give me a little bit about yourself. You want to just what you're doing today and where maybe people might contact you if they've, uh, if they, if what you've said today, uh, touched them. I know Thank that you. you have, uh, yes, I have written a book. Uh, so, but you can find me at emerge leadership Academy. Um, I wrote a book called emerge seven steps to transformation, no matter what life throws at you, which was really good for the year 2020 because yeah. life threw us a big curveball there. Um, but and I also have a podcast called Emerge Evolve Lead is for people in recovery who want to step into leadership or hear inspiring stories about people who have done that. Um, so yeah, I'm, I have a program also called Recovery at Work. So if you're ready to step up in your career, uh, you could work with me as a coach. And I do personality at work. So I love helping people with their personality. So I have a blog every week. And if you want to go to my site and take the quiz, you can learn what animal best represents your leadership style. 
Huh. I might have to do that. You uh, really should, because when your podcast comes out, you're going to want to know, have that newsletter. <laughs> so you could send it to your friends. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, your podcast is going to come out in, I think, mid or early April, early April, something like yeah. that. Yeah, that's probably about where this one is of uh, that 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 clubhouse boost i've always tried to stay like kind of just on time i've never really like had a bunch of them in the can you know you got a bunch of them in the can now now i have some in the can after uh because the strike when the iron is hot when i throw it out there and somebody says i'd like to do it well then i try to arrange it you know before that fire goes out and i know right yeah yeah, that's a good way to do it yeah and it really really just i love doing this you know i just really it's something that lifts me this is another thing that just i had no idea that i would be doing this and uh, and and I had no idea how much it fills my cup to sit and get to know somebody and listen to them and and uh, and I would say you know thank you for uh, allowing me to participate in my recovery. Some guy told me you must participate in your recovery, Dan. And it was when I was bobbing around, just hoping I'd get it by osmosis. And this is a uh, the universe has given me some really unique ways to participate in my recovery, and uh, and, and I'm, I'm grateful for the for the ability for these, these, you know, we got the standard ones and it seems like I keep on getting these really, really cool ones. <laughs> well, it's really true. And, and honestly, um, the more, the, the better you, we, the more we do, the better we get. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in the podcasting arena or in the blogging arena or speaking arena, and you're, you're just already flying, Dan, you know, Thank at you. six years sober, it's so awesome to see how involved you are and how connected you are. And also what a great community we're developing on Clubhouse. It's just really been a great conversation. And I'm really happy for you that you have all of these wonderful people to connect with. Oh, thank you very much. It's been a, it's been a whirlwind. Yeah, it has, yeah. but it's fun. It's it, fun. Oh, it is. <laughs> it, so uh, with that, I'll just segue to my closing because it has part of that in there. If you're not having a blast in your recovery, it's your own damn fault. Because <laughs> right? I'm having a blast and I believe, and I, and I know with all my heart that this is available to all. Uh, I'm not, I'm not special here. Uh, this is available to everyone. And, uh, and then I just want to thank everybody out there for listening today. And, uh, thank you for allowing Maureen and I to participate in our recoveries in this manner today. Peace out. Peace out.